it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very exciting show. We have Kevin Carter here with us. He is the founder and CIO of EMQQ, an emerging markets internet and e-commerce index. He's here to talk to us about international opportunities and other fun stuff. So, Kevin, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come talk to us. So, I guess maybe let's start with some of your background. Kind of tell us how you got to where you are. Sure. So thanks for having me. So I'm the founder of EMQQ Global and am also the founder of three different ETFs, EMQQ, which you mentioned, which is an emerging markets internet uh, ETF, and then a similar product called FMQQ, which is the same without China. And we've also got an India version as well. But in terms of myself, I live and work in the Bay Area, as mentioned, and I worked in the investment business here for about 30 years now. And I started in December or January of 1991. I had an interview, uh, my first interview with an only interview with a company called Roberts and Stevens and Company in San Francisco, which was the technology uh, focused investment bank that we used to call it the Goldman Sachs of San Francisco. But now younger people think that that's an evil thing. So <laughs> it was the, you know, the leading technology investment bank. And my interview was 20 minutes long. And uh, we talked about college basketball for 19 minutes. And then they told me I could start Monday. 
And I said, well, I don't know anything. How can I start Monday? And they said, go buy this book. And they wrote down on a piece of paper, a random walk down Wall Street. I assume you guys know a random walk down Wall Street. Heard of it, yes. (laughs) So I went to the bookstore and I read it over the weekend and I showed up on Monday morning. And as you guys know, this is a book that's all about indexing and efficient markets. It was first written actually 50 years ago. And uh, in the first edition, the author, Bert Malkiel, who's a Princeton economist and longtime Vanguard board member, he suggested somebody should make an index fund in 1972 because there were no index funds at that point. And a few, a couple years later, his friend John Bogle started an index fund and Vanguard was born. And so that's what this book is all about, efficient markets indexing. And the author, actually, Bert, he was also the chairman of the committee that launched the first ETF the spider. So that's how I started my life in the investment world. But I very quickly gravitated towards Omaha. I think about every business and investment decision through an Omaha lens first and foremost. But for the last 22 years, I've actually been partners with Bert Malkiel, the Princeton economist and Vanguard board member. So I've had sort of one foot in the active world and one foot in the indexing world for a while now. And The first thing that Burton and I did together was we started what basically the first fractional share brokerage company. So I had decided that, you know, the problem with investing back then was that if you were an average investor, it was really hard to diversify without buying a mutual fund. If you wanted to buy one stock, you had to buy 100 shares to get the 1999 commission at Schwab, which was the cheapest. And so if the stock was $30 a share, you had to buy $3,000 into one stock. And most people, you know, when you're starting investing and you need to start investing, you've got to invest whatever you can save every month. And that might be $300. It might be $500, $800. But, you know, when you're 22 or three years old, you probably don't have $5,000 a month to put into stocks. And so you're stuck with mutual funds and all the problems they have. So we started off trying to save the world with a system for fractional share brokerage, which we built and sold to E-Trade. And then we uh, moved on to another idea that we had that was sort of, well, it wasn't a thing yet, but it's now called direct indexing. And this is the idea that you can build your own customized S&P 500 strategy using a subset of the stocks. So maybe 50 stocks for the S&P 500. And you can get, by doing it in a separate account, you can You don't have to have the mutual fund layer. You can have your own cost basis. And you can also, if you were against tobacco or firearms, you could say, I don't want any of those stocks in my portfolio. So you you could do those things. But but more importantly, if you were a taxable investor, you could actually beat the index on an after-tax basis by systematic loss harvesting. At least that was the theory we had. And so we built this company, Active Index Advisors, to do that. And we ended up selling it to Natixis at the very end of 2004. But just before we sold the company to the Texas, Google went public and they asked my partner Burton to be a speaker to their employees and tell them how they ought to invest or not invest their money. So he was part of this investor planning day for the Google employees. I didn't get invited to that event, but I had dinner with Burton the night before. And then a few months later, I got a call from a guy at Google. And this was after they'd gone public. And he said, hey, I heard about this 
direct indexing. I want to build my own custom index portfolio. And I said, well, okay, who's your advisor? Because we didn't work with individual investors. We were available at Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank. And I said, well, you'll have to find an advisor at one of those places. And he said, I don't want an advisor. And I said, well, I'll I'll come have lunch with you. So I drove down to Mountain View one day and I had lunch with this guy and kind of showed him what we did and convinced me to become his financial advisor, basically. And so now this is early 2005 and uh, he starts introducing me to other Google people. So all of a sudden we've sold the company to the Texas, but I'm going back and forth to Mountain View every week to meet a new Google person and set them up with their custom S&P 500 strategy. But my partner, Burton, starts going back and forth to China. A couple of his Princeton colleagues were Chinese economists, and they had returned to Beijing to teach economics. And so Burton starts going back and forth to China while I'm going back and forth to Google. And he ends up writing a white paper about investing in China. The Google people called me and said, can Burton come talk about China? And I said, sure. And then 16 years ago, we drove down to Mountain View and Burton gave a talk. And when he finished his talk, all of these people looked at me and said, we want to invest in China. <laughs> and literally from the moment that talk ended until today, I've been trying to figure out what does that even mean and how in the world do you invest in China and more broadly in emerging markets? That's how I got involved with emerging markets. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Such a great timeline. I think it's super cool to see you've gotten to interact, obviously, with one of the great heroes of Wall Street, very intimately. And it's cool that you've had experience directly in lots of different places, whether we're talking about active or index, more passive investing. I feel like China seems like a little bit of a curse word lately. You've been in this emerging markets thing since 2006, I think you had it on the slide. Is it still considered an emerging market? Is it still a place people want to invest, especially lately? Well, I mean, let me first start by saying that the one thing that's the most consistent part of my 16 years as a China person is that 90% of the people I talk to, most of which are professional investors or advisors, 90% of them have never been to China. And 90% of them are afraid of China. They don't know why or how. They think that the Chinese are evil. The government is communist and it must be bad. And they're making up all the numbers and they're probably going to steal all my money. I mean, that's the most consistent thing I've heard over the years is people are just afraid and it's foreign to them in a very big way. And yes, China has been very much in the news and very much in a negative way for investors, been all sorts of noise, delistings and you know government crackdowns and so on and so forth. And frankly, all of that stuff, you know, every one of the regulatory things and the things that people have been worried about. I, I don't see them the same way. I see a lot of what's happened, you know, with the government is the same kind of things that are happening here. I mean, these technology platforms have grown so fast and become so big and so powerful that no regulators anywhere on the planet have been able to keep up with them. And you can see the Silicon Valley guys in Washington, D.C. seems like every month defending something or getting fined and who knows how much Google pays and fines every year in Europe. I mean, it seems like every quarter there's a some multi-billion dollar payment to somebody. So so there's been a, a lot of fear around China. And then, of course, you know, you do have a, another issue right now with China, and that's the COVID. And they've somehow, you know, two years later, they're just now having the COVID come to town and they're trying to keep it out with the zero COVID policy. And that's, you know, causing some real challenges for the economy. So people are, you know, generally afraid of China. And, you know, those fears have led, I think, to a lot of the declines that we've had. I'm not as concerned about the things that most people have concerned about. I've been concerned about the COVID issue uh, since before the COVID got there because it was pretty clear it was going to get there, especially after the Olympics. And then to your other question about is China an emerging market? This is something people have asked me and we've talked about since I first got involved with China. People say, well, gee, China is so big. It's the second largest economy. It could be the first largest economy, if not now, maybe soon. And so how can that be an emerging market? Well, in a traditional way of you know measuring emerging markets, there's first of all, there's nobody that's officially in charge of defining what you are. The MSCI index is the index that most people refer to when they want to see how are emerging markets doing. But the Vanguard Emerging Markets Index is the FTSE index, and they're not exactly the same. I mean, the performance is essentially the same, but Korea is not included in the Vanguard uh, version. And and the way that you get classified in the traditional sense is the average GDP per person, right? What's the average per capita GDP 
And to be developed, you need to have about $25,000 a year. And China's, you know, less than half that. So in a traditional sense, yes, China is an emerging market, but it it's such a big market that it, you know, it dominates the emerging market indexes, dominates the EMQQ. And, and the reason it dominates our investments, at least our, you know, our, our flagship fund, we do have a product that's ex-China. It's because China's e-commerce market is the biggest in the world. And it, China is the Jetsons. When we talk about smartphones, e-commerce, technology, there is no de- country even close to being as developed as they are. So China is, it's a puzzle for the investment world to deal with. And frankly, the whole emerging market asset class has so many problems with it. I mean, you've taken 46 countries from, you know, Asia and Uruguay and Pakistan and, you know, places that have nothing really related to each other other than they're not developed. And so there's, when you start digging in to emerging markets, you know, there's really two things to know. The indexes are totally broken, and the MSCI index is the biggest value trap in the world. And the reason that the indexes are broken is something I learned in the first five minutes after I got in, after Burton's talk in Mountain View 16 years ago, we had lunch there at Google that day. I think Mario Batali was, I think, the guest chef that day. And so there, Burton and Mario swapped books and we had lunch. And then we went up back to San Francisco and I walked straight over to our portfolio managers and I said, the Google guys want to invest in China. Give me a list of all the companies in the China ETF with the ticker FXI, which is an iShares fund. And that was the first and only China ETF. And I wanted to see the list of companies because I'm an Omaha person. I don't care what the title of the fund is. I want to know what are the businesses we're going to become owners of. So I asked for the list of companies in the China ETF. And before they gave me the list, Burton pulled me aside and he said, Kevin, when you see the list of the companies in the China ETF, you're going to see that almost all of them are Chinese government-owned banks and oil companies. (laughs) And that didn't sound very good to me. And he went on to give me some examples of how these companies work. But, you know, imagine the Department of Motor Vehicles meets you know, your bank. In addition to conflicts of interest and inefficiencies, poor corporate governance is putting it mildly. And in the case of the China ETF 16 years ago, it was 80% state-owned enterprises. And now it's not as bad in the broad indexes. In the MSCI, it's probably about 30%. And you don't have to look very far to see the problems. You've had the country of Brazil thrown into you know, years of turmoil as it was uncovered that a third of their congressmen and two or maybe three of the last presidents were all systematically stealing billions of dollars from Petrobras and thus from investors in the iShares or Vanguard funds that track this part of the world. So that's the real problem. I mean, the index is full of these not real companies. I mean, they're not trying to grow earnings in a you know, which is how you grow your value in Omaha it's really simple the way you make your company go up you grow your earnings and that is how you grow your value and if the people running these companies don't care about that why would you invest in them at all and if you counted the chebol in Korea and the oligarchs in Russia it was more like 50% of the index and so that's why you can't use the index you've got to evolve and get more 
you, know, you can't use the traditional approach. You got to get more targeted. And when it comes to emerging markets, what you want to target is the consumer and it's the consumer sector. So that's the other thing that people need to know is that the, the traditional indexes are broken and I think are not going to do very well for you. They haven't done anything over the last 15 years. So that's why you don't want to use the big indexes. And what you want to focus on is the consumer. And that's the story. The thing that's emerging are the people. There's billions of people and they want stuff. They're moving on up and they want more and better food, clothing, appliances. They want to take vacations, go to movies, uh, get a car, more realistically, a motorcycle or a scooter. And then they want their kids to go to college. And that's what you should be focused on. McKinsey calls it the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism. And maybe they're wrong and it's the second or third biggest opportunity in the history of capitalism. But either way, the billions of people in the developing world from China, India, Nigeria, Vietnam, Brazil, these people want the things that we take for granted. And the world's got some headwinds now, but they will continue to move on up. And I think McKinsey's right. There's going to be a huge amount of growth to consumer over the next 25 years in the developing world. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. The numbers just kind of play out when you just think about the sheer number of people in the world. And it is super, super exciting. You know, investors should get excited about that, whether they are invested in companies here that are in the United States that are exporting to those countries or potentially countries abroad. If you don't mind, I'd like to stay on the China thing because I feel like this is an opportunity to get a bullish case for China, especially amid all the negativity. I'm one of those people who has never been to China. My fiance has been to China and she told me how none of her apps worked there. There was like one app that she could download that would work while she was there. So just based on that limited sphere, that already terrifies me. So what we've seen with Russia and how there's been conflict, which has led to investors who had assets in Russia no longer have assets in Russia is that a big risk for investors here or are we overthinking it when it comes to assets in China? I don't think that the Russia situation and the China situation are comparable in that way. Look, China is a communist government and it has been for 75 or 80 years now. And uh, they do things a different way. And one of the things that they've done over the last three decades is to embrace capitalism. And Deng Xiaoping led that charge and it worked and it worked incredibly well. And nobody has benefited from capitalism more in the last 30 years than China has. And so part of that is private enterprise and you know the ability to make a profit. And I don't think the Chinese government, I mean, you might have your feelings, not you particularly, but people may have different feelings about the Chinese government, probably more likely negative than positive. But I think that they may be whatever you think they are. They're definitely not stupid. And so I don't think, you know, this is one of the fears people think, oh my gosh, they're going to take over Alibaba, Jack Ma's missing. You know, they know that once, if they do that, they've ruined it for themselves. They're evil or not, they're not dumb. And they know capitalism works. Their economic leaders have gone to our best colleges. They've taught at our best colleges. I mean, these people know how the world works. And I think it's highly unlikely that you'll see some sort of, you know, wholesale, you know, nationalization of the Chinese internet companies, which is what we invest in. 
Yeah. As well true. as the internet companies, of course, in you know India, Brazil, etc. Which I'm glad you brought up because I think it's one of those things that wasn't talked about at all. And it seems to be talked about a lot more. What about for like a company like TikTok, for example, where there have been concerns about the data that's being housed, whether it's here or over there? Are there risks in a company like that being completely state-owned versus you know for 16 years people have said oh the chinese government they just take over companies they just and i've said to them i've never seen that i mean i've been doing this for 16 years now and i've never seen the chinese government you know steal a company or take over a company or nationalize a company no they've taken over a couple of highly leveraged real estate and financial empires that were crumbling because they had to kind of the way we did with our banks but I've never seen them uh, go in and take over one of these companies. I did do one thing last year that looked and felt like that, uh, which was very unfortunate. And that was change in the regulations for the private tutoring companies, uh, the online education companies. And they, unfortunately, when they changed the laws around that, which I support what they did, I don't, I'm not sure it'll work, but they had to do something because that for-profit education business had become a real problem for the society in China. The action they took was what they said it would no longer be legal for companies to make a profit teaching the kids the things they're supposed to learn in their public schools. Because you had this arms race with the Chinese parent because you know with the one child policy you had every school children he's got two sets of grandparents and two parents and the hopes and dreams of those six people are all all on this one child and that child's futures depend largely on how they do on the SAT or the the Chinese version of the SAT. And so from the time they're young, they pour money into tutoring after school on the weekends, 80% of the kids are doing it. And there's a feeling that they have to keep up with the Joneses. And if you're a rich person in Shanghai, you know, you can afford to pay for the tutoring. But if you're a farmer and you're barely getting by, well, and you've got to spend all your extra income, you can't buy the clothes you want. You can't get the protein you want. You can't go see a movie because you've got to send your daughter to private school or she gets home for regular school. So in, a, in an effort to address that, which had gotten out of control, they said, you can't make a profit. Teach them that You can teach them piano, you can teach them English, but you can't teach them the curriculum we teach them in their preschooling. And unfortunately, the U.S., you know, the, the three of those companies were publicly traded in the United States. And while the Chinese government didn't actually steal anybody's money, it looked and felt enough like that, that people said, aha, I knew it. They stole my money. And well, they didn't really do that. But but so I just never seen all, you know, there's all these, lots of people talk about it, but I've never actually seen the Chinese government go in and, and take over a business, a freely operating and successful and profitable company and none of the internet companies. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep 
is Benjamin Boster. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Yeah, those are all great points. I mean, do you have any advice for an investor who wanted to learn more to assuage their fears about investing in China? Any resources to learn about how business works there and how they can feel better about the risk factors of investing in China? To be honest, I would say no, not off the top of my head. I mean, I, you know, Burton wrote a book called From Wall Street to the Great Wall, which helps put China into perspective. I mean, that's one of the things about China that I think helped me. I don't know what it helped me do, but the Chinese history, especially the last 200 years, is fascinating. And, and you know, people don't realize how it came to be. I mean, you know, China was the biggest economy in the world for 48 of the last 50 centuries. It was by far the biggest, most prosperous place. They had by far the most advanced society and economy. And it was just a booming, flourishing place hundreds of years before Europe was anything. And it was, you know, the system was always, you know, with the emperor. And the emperors changed, you know, several times in the different families became the ruling families but but it was always an emperor and even with that it was a very prosperous place the emperor's job was to provide peace which meant put up a wall keep the mongols from coming in and taking all of our stuff and just leave us alone right give us a chance for prosperity and that's the way the chinese government relationship has been for you know most of the history of their existence which is quite a long time and that was the case at the end of the 1800s. They still had an emperor, but the British came in and basically colonized China in the middle of the 1800s because the Chinese wanted to outlaw opium sales. And the British said, no, we need to sell opium to pay for all the stuff we're buying from you. So because the British had gotten a taste for tea and porcelain and silk, and the only place that came from, along with gunpowder, was China. And the United States and the other Europeans got in on the act and we all colonized in a certain way and took parts of Shanghai. And that's, you know, that was kind of mid 1800s. And that gave them started a hundred years of humiliation. So we took, we basically beat them down. And then the Japanese started coming in and taking the Northeast. So the place was a mess. And then, you know, you had the Sun Yat-sen and Shanghai Shek come in in the early 1900s and take out the warlords that were running rampant because the boy emperor was, you know, doing his job as he was five years old or whatever. And then they had a, a government, the Nationalist Party, that was in charge of the country when World War II came, but they were battling with the communists. 
And Generalissimo, the guy that was the president and the general, he was obsessed with fighting the communists, which Mao was part of. But meanwhile, Japan was taking the northeast part of the country. And then his own generals had to kidnap him and say, look, you know, these communist guys are hiding in caves. The Japanese are coming in from the Northeast and the United States got involved and the United States sent their military up to the caves in the North where Mao was hiding. And the United States military worked with Mao and brought him out to meet with Chiang Kai-shek in in, uh, Chongqing and convinced them they had to work together to fight the Japanese and we armed Mao. And then after the Japanese left, which they did because they were getting threatened by the Americans coming across the Pacific. Well, then the communists were able to defeat the nationalists fair and square. And the nationalists took all the treasures and went to Taiwan and said, all right, we're going to hide here. So we helped the whole thing get where it is. And it is what it is. It's a, the system has been very effective in terms of advancing their economy over the last several decades. And again, it's got some parts to it that are disdainful to, you know, our tastes and worldviews. But I, I think it's an amazing culture, and I think it's quite unfortunate that there's become this just intense war with them. Uh, you know, it's a technological war. It's I think it's a terrible thing. I mean, this is our biggest trading partner, and we're the both the superpowers of the world. And if we could find a way to work together, at least not be as hostile in our competition. And I personally think that a lot of that hostile tone is originated from us. It's a puzzle. China's a complicated place, and it'll remain that you know for the foreseeable future. That's all super interesting, and the history, I think, is fascinating. So I guess a question that kind of springs to mind when we're talking about this is I understand, you know, looking at the consumer and whatnot. So if we're going to investigate a company, maybe in China, maybe in India, maybe in Brazil, what are our resources? You know, like we have the SEC and we have Edgar, so we have all those kinds of accounting things. Is there a similar kind of system set up? in emerging markets that we can use to read financials with the companies to to help us learn more about a company like Alibaba or you know somebody like New Bank from Brazil? Most of these companies list in the United States and follow US accounting regulations. So you can get their annual reports, you know, on the web a number of different places. So that's another issue on the China side. I'd, I'd like to t- talk about the beyond China part because there's something very big happening uh, beyond China. You know, one of the things that was always interesting to me when I got involved with China was that the Google of China traded on, you know, in the United States. And that meant that almost everybody that used Baidu couldn't invest in the company because mainland Chinese investors can't, uh, certainly not back then and still now couldn't easily invest outside of the mainland. And it was a strange situation. You think, what if Google traded in Shanghai in the A share market, right? And I mean, how strange would that be? Now, the reality is the reason it happened is because most of these internet companies in China and elsewhere, they were funded by U.S. venture capitalists. And it might be Harvard's endowment or Stanford's endowment fund, you know, invested through a fund. And so when these companies went public, they want them to trade on the best, most liquid exchanges in the world, which are ours. And unfortunately, I didn't talk about this, but the other problem with indexing in the traditional indexes is that none of these companies were included in the index. I mentioned how 16 years ago, we drove back from Mountain View to San Francisco, and I I asked for the list of all the companies. 
And Burton warned me about the standout enterprises. And I said, okay, got it. And then I got the list and I went through the list and I saw all the banks and oil companies. And I got to the bottom and I said, where's Baidu? Baidu wasn't in the China fund, China index. So we called the iShares people and said, hey, we're thinking about using this China ETF of yours. Where's Baidu? And they said, we don't own Baidu. I said, I can see that. Why don't you own Baidu? <laughs> they said, well, we don't consider it a Chinese company. And I said, well, what do you mean? It's the Google of China. And that, based on the dollar amount these Google people are investing, it seems like being the Google of anything is a good idea. And they said, well, we don't own it because we don't consider it Chinese because it trades in the United States. So these companies, most of these internet companies seeking to have you know the highest listing standards possible, they get penalized by the index providers who don't include them. So to add insult to injury, you get all the Chinese, or not just Chinese, but the state-owned enterprises, but most of the internet companies are still missing. Now, let me see how I can say this politely. <laughs> One of the things I've you know, again, I'm an Omaha person, but I've been working in and around the indexing business for the last 22 years. And for whatever reason, it seems like the people and companies within the indexing world, they don't maybe think about investing so much as they ought to and have original thoughts or ask questions. But you'd be shocked how many of the internet companies are missing from the indexes. And a lot of it comes down to the database. You're putting people in these companies in boxes. You got to put them in box. What's their sector? And, you know, that top level 11 gigs. And then, but for every one of the, and that's like real estate or, you know, materials, those high level 11 categories, but then companies get categorized three more times in a more granular fashion. And they also get put into the database with a country. You have to have a country. What's your country? And so what's happened, particularly in emerging markets, is you take a company like Mercado Libre, which is the Amazon.com of Brazil and every other country in Latin America. Well, its headquarters are Argentina. At least they have been. So you look at a fact sheet, they'll say, oh, you've got 8% in Argentina. Well, the company is headquartered there, but more than half the revenue comes from Brazil, which is the biggest population in Latin America. Mexico is the second biggest. So some of those things, they don't translate properly. And what I've learned is the big index providers don't seem to check. You know, I used to tell people before I made EMQQ, when people would say, what's the best emerging markets ETF? I would say that's easy, by econ, by the emerging market consumer ETF, right? If you believe McKinsey, that's what you want to own. And and that fund, it, I had nothing to do with that ETF, by the way. I had you know, been making some things with Guggenheim. But it owned the 30 largest emerging market consumer stocks, according to Dow Jones. And so I told people to, you know, when they asked me what to buy, I said, buy that. You know, when I first heard about that fund, I went through all 30 of the companies that it owned. I printed up the annual reports. And the first two companies, according to the fact sheet, they were South African companies. And they were both about 10% of the portfolio. And one of them was a company called Naspers, which is basically, it's a South African newspaper company, but they made one of the greatest venture capital investors of all time, investments of all time. They bought 43% of Tencent for $30 million 16 years ago. So now it's it's worth 100. When I was reading the end report, I could see that the market value of the company was $100 billion. And the balance sheet had $120 billion of Tencent stock. <laughs> so the database said South African newspaper, but the financial statement said Chinese technology company. <laughs> 
So I applauded the investment, but it got there accidentally, right? Because the people there, nobody looks what exactly are these companies. And the second one, which was also a 10% weight from South Africa, was called Steinhoff International. And they trade in Johannesburg. They're headquartered in South Africa. It's a furniture maker. All the furniture gets sold in Western Europe. So you're trying to invest in the emerging market consumer and the database says, well, here's an emerging market consumer stock. But if you open up and look at closely, the revenue is not coming from South Africa or any emerging markets. It's coming from Western Europe. So those are the kinds of problems that you find in emerging and frontier markets. You can index, but you got to do rolling up some sleeves. And unfortunately, I don't think most of the traditional indexing outfits are situated or thinking or realize that even. All right, folks. Well, that will wrap up part one of our great interview with Kevin Carter. We will continue this conversation in the next episode, which will be out in a few days. So thanks for your patience, and I hope you enjoy. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day to come talk to us and help educate our listeners about the emerging markets. I found it fascinating, and there was a lot of cool stuff that you were discussing and things that I didn't know, and I always liked that. So my hands were kind of like this. So I was super excited about everything you're talking oh. about. So very, thank you very much. And uh, everybody go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.